Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode 106, Ed M. Winkleried, The Limits of Contextual Interpretation in the Age of Statutes. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Alex Nunn, from the University of Arkansas School of Law. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence and proof. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. On the podcast today, we are fortunate to be able to be joined by an evidence scholar who really needs no introduction. Ed M. Winkleried is joining us from the UC Davis School of Law to talk about his new article in the Oklahoma Law Review. That article is entitled, quote, Importing Restrictions from One Federal Rule of Evidence Provision to Another, The Limits of Legitimate Contextual Interpretation in the Age of Statutes. Now, to my mind, my conversation with Ed today and his article more broadly really accomplish two different things. So first, on a more discrete level, Ed identifies how certain judges are using this quirky interpretive tool that has resulted in the misapplication of the federal rules of evidence in at least three different contexts. More broadly, though, the identification of the misapplication of the rules of evidence in those three different contexts tees up a broader discussion between me and Ed about the role of interpretive judicial methods in evidence law. Is it appropriate to take a moderate textualist approach when reading the federal rules of evidence, or should judges adopt a more purposivist approach when reading and applying the federal rules? It's a really fascinating discussion, and I trust you'll enjoy my conversation with Ed today. Ed, welcome to Excited Utterance. So I want to begin our conversation by taking stock of history and begin really with the recognition that I think the federal rules of evidence nearing their 50th birthday, right? So remind us before we get into anything else, what did evidence law look like prior to the codification of the rules? Well, I know this is an admission of my age, but I actually have some recollection of that because I started teaching before there were federal rules of evidence. I started teaching at San Diego in 1974. And at that point, you had a perception that it was a frustrating but heady time to be an evidence scholar. On the one hand, it was frustrating. There was no one starting place for your research. You didn't have the opportunity to go straight to the federal rules. You had Wigmore, you had McCormick, which tried to systematize the common law but whenever you read those, you realized there was a comma, but comma, but this could change tomorrow because an appellate court, or for that matter, a trial court in some jurisdictions could adopt a different view. But precisely because of that, it was sort of heady in the sense that you knew that if you could get one judge sitting somewhere to approve of the view in your article, at least for a short period of time, it could become law. You could have an immediate impact reforming the law. So it was both frustrating and heady when, when you were faced with that common law landscape. I wanna follow up on that point, kind of a related issue, because foundational to your perspective then 
is the view that the enactment of the federal rules of evidence, it served to displace or, or fully replace that common law then, right? It wasn't a mere supplement to common law evidence as it existed prior to the rules. Is that correct? Well, you go back to what Ed Cleary wrote in that 1978 Nebraska article, which is twice in Daubert and Abel been approvingly quoted by the Supreme Court. In principle, no common law of evidence remains. If you look first to the work of the Judicial Conference Committees, they said in effect, evolving law for a national economy by appellate work had failed. We've got this national economy now. Wisconsin businesses wanna know that their business entries will be usable in New York, in California, and South Dakota. And because we're relying on common law, they can't have confidence that that's gonna happen. And after the Judicial Conference Committee say that, you've got Congress weighing it. And this is the same Congress that is fighting Richard Nixon in federal court over claims of executive privilege. It's a Congress that's very jealous of its constitutional prerogatives. And it gives us a 402 that conspicuously makes no mention of case or decisional law. And given the way they framed 402, rules of court adopted pursuant to statutory authority, there's this clear negative implication, as Cleary said, no common law of evidence remains. Now, that's an overstatement, obviously. You've got some windows to the common law in rules like 301 and 501. But if the question is squarely put, do the courts any longer have the power, the constitutional authority to announce categorical exclusionary rules of evidence, given what the Judicial Conference Committee said and what Congress said, I think the answer to that's no. I kind of want to turn to the problem you identify in this particular article, and we're going to return to the issue of the common law of evidence kind of intention with the federal rules in just a second. But I want to tee up that broader discussion by exploring the discrete issue you explore in this paper. So in this paper, you see judges kind of imposing evidentiary restrictions not mandated by the rules in at least three different contexts. Build that out for us. Sure. And again, I think in large part, they're filling them in in a completely well-intentioned fashion. They are striving to reach the right, just result. And there's almost a nostalgia for their common law power to do so, to reformulate the rules to reach the right result. And the fact pattern where this temptation, this nostalgia comes into play is the situation in which you've got a restriction set out in one provision of the federal rules, a related provision that doesn't contain that restriction, and legislative history that is devoid of any indication that Congress wanted the restriction in provision number one to be enforced in provision number two. But the judge is looking at this fact pattern, this fact pattern with these three elements and saying to himself or herself, but if I don't do that, if I don't in fact import the restriction in provision number one 
into restriction number two, I'm going to reach an inappropriate unjust result. And I think I've seen that temptation in cases importing 609 restrictions into 608, the near miss doctrine in hearsay, importing restrictions from 803 and 804 into 807, and then the Oates problem, importing restrictions from 8038 into 8036. And I looked at those three lines of authority and concluded that in two cases, the temptation should not have been succumbed to. But in the third case, the legislative history, both in the advisory committee note and in the congressional deliberations, reflected a broader concern. It reflected a concern that certain sorts of records that would be admissible under 8038 would raise confrontation clause problems and a confrontation problems problem wouldn't be muted simply by alternatively offering it under 8036. So that's the basic situation, a restriction in provision one, no restriction in number two and legislative history that's either devoid or very weak with the suggestion that the restriction in one should be enforced under number two. Well, let me follow up on those situations where you said that the imported restrictions, if you will, are improper, because I think it's kind of fascinating to consider whether those imported restrictions are simple judicial mistakes, just misunderstanding of the rule in front of the judge at a particular point in time, or if they're reflective of perhaps broader judicial misunderstanding regarding the appropriate judicial posture towards the federal rules. Do you have any thought on that calculus? Sure, uh, these problems raise a fundamental question that Eskridge and Fricke point out. If you adopt the moderate textualist view that you should routinely consult extrinsic legislative history like the advisory committee notes, but allow them to rebut the presumption suggested by text only in extraordinary cases where the legislative intent is very clearly compellingly expressed. The question becomes not whether we should look to legislative history, but how much the legislative history should count for. And I think Andy Taslett really performed a good service there because what Andy did was said, you've got to look at the legislative history in a politically realistic fashion and ask yourself, are we just looking at some snippet of legislative history? As Otto Hetzel used to say, we're rummaging through the trash bins of legislative history to find something that supports a result that we want. Or are we finding legislative history that really is strong evidence of the collective will of the legislature? So in one case, for example, importing 609 restrictions into 608. It's true that there's a reference in the advisory committee note to 608, though not subject to criminal conviction. But that passage standing alone isn't enough in my judgment to count as support for the conclusion that if the untruthful act has resulted in a conviction, you can't resort to 608B, you've got to go through 609. You've got a snippet in legislative history, but if you ask yourself the question, is that 
enough to support the conclusion that there was a collective legislative will to impose 609 restrictions on 608B when there's been a conviction, I think the politically realistic answer is no. And, and the same thing with respect to the near miss doctrine. Yes, the House deliberations rejected the residual exception and raised all sorts of concerns about limitless judicial discretion under hearsay, but not only did the advisory committee note cite to Dallas County, the Senate report did, and there was favorable reflections during the conference deliberations. And so if the question is, standing alone, do the passages in the House deliberations support the conclusion that it was the collective will of the legislature to have a near-miss doctrine? Again, I think the politically realistic answer is no. But I contrast that with what happened under 8038 and 8036. To begin with, you've got the advisory committee note itself saying that if we don't exclude these sorts of records, there's going to be a virtually inevitable, quote, collision between the rule and the confrontation clause. And in the House and during the conference, you've got legislators leading proponents of the restrictions saying that we're imposing these restrictions because we've got the confrontation clause. And that's a problem that transcends 8038. You can't make the confrontation clause problem go away simply by offering it under 8036. And during the conference deliberations, you've got Hungate, one of the leading figures saying, I cannot see how anybody could suggest that introducing such a report is possible or a thing that can be done under these rules. So if you go to the basic question of how much does the legislative history count, here, the legislative history that counts indicates that there was a collective will, not just to exclude these records under eight, but to exclude them, period, because of a constitutional concern that transcends eight and also affects six. Stepping back for a second, I think what I'm beginning to appreciate is that this debate about imported restrictions in the federal rules of evidence it largely seems like an outgrowth of a broader tension in how judges should interpret the federal rules of evidence. I think that this is probably one of many areas where we see tension between, say, textualist and purposivist readings of the federal rules. And of course, I think it's safe to say that for a few decades now, you have been the leading proponent and advocate for a textualist reading of the rules. So let's kind of turn the conversation in that direction. What does textualism look like in the context of the federal rules of evidence? Well, let me say both what I support and what I don't support. As, as I suggested to you when you had an earlier conversation, I don't support grand top-down theories of statutory interpretation. You have to have the appropriate approach for this piece of legislation. Not all pieces of legislation are carefully sculpted and deliberately passed. I mean, Eskridge and Fricke give the great example of the piece of legislation that passed both the House and Senate, which included Ruth Seymour 2254844. 
That was the name of the date and the phone number of the date of the staff was going out with that night. And the staffer just put that in the legislation and nobody read the stuff. It was hurried legislation that was pushed through on an emergency basis. And it seems to me that when you've got that type of legislation, it's silly to apply a textualist approach because it's fanciful to assume that the legislature carefully deliberated over every word. They didn't. Beyond that, if you are going to conclude that textualism is appropriate for a particular statutory scheme, I don't support strict textualism. I don't support a resurrection of plain meaning that you can't consider extrinsic legislative history at all unless you find that there's no plain meaning on the face of the statute. Drafters are too fallible. They have limited foresight. And I think it's absolutely correct to say we should routinely consider legislative history, such as the advisory committee notes, and simply politically realistically evaluate what it counts for. So what I favor is a moderate textualist approach in which if you find a plain meaning evident to the intended audience of the legislation, then you should have a relatively strong rebuttable presumption that that's the meaning we should give to the statute unless number one, that interpretation leads to an absurd or arguably constitutional result, or number two, there really is strong legislative history to the contrary. And I emphasize that one point about plain meaning for the intended audience. One of the reasons I favor a moderate textualist approach to the federal rules is that this is not like the SEC statute. This is not ERISA that's intended primarily for transactional attorneys. Judge Maris was the chair of the Committee on Practice and Procedure when the Judicial Conference was working on the federal rules. And he said, what they were striving for was a code you could keep, quote, on the desk of the judge and trial lawyer to which he can refer immediately when a question comes up, unquote. And as Eileen Scallon pointed out, this is intended for use by judges and attorneys so that when an issue arises sometimes unexpectedly at trial, at sidebar, they've got something they can look at and trust as a basis for resolving the evidentiary issue. You don't have the luxury at sidebar in that real world trial context to conduct extended legal research. Now, you do have computer capability to do that now, but the problem is you'd be doing that legal research with an impatient jury sitting there while they're conducting the sidebar. And because we've got a federals that was carefully parsed, seven years by the judicial conference, two years by Congress, and because this is intended for use in many cases in court at sidebar with those tremendous time constraints, that's why I think moderate textualism is the appropriate approach for construing the federal's of evidence. It's not an appropriate approach for all codes, but I think for the federal rules, it is the right tack. 
I want to follow up on two fronts here. So first is with respect to how your moderate textualism, this interpretive theory, would respond to these imported restrictions you identify in the, the federal rules of evidence. And then second is more on the normative front, thinking about this interpretive theory and thinking about pushback you might receive. But let's start first with the former. So beginning with you know those imported restrictions that we discussed earlier, where judges are taking an evidentiary restriction from one section of the federal rules and perhaps applying it in a disparate area, how might your interpretive theory solve those puzzles or what insight can it give us there? Well, I think a judge who has an appropriate sense of constitutional self-restraint in certain cases simply has to say, on the one hand, I think the right result would be A. On the other hand, because of my limited role in construing these rules, I think I'm required to reach result B. I think the rule ought to be amended. I commend the advisory committee to take a look at this issue, sort of red flagging this issue for scholars to write, like you, to write articles saying what the judge said in that opinion is correct and the advisory committee ought to do it. But in those situations, I think the judge has to say, I simply lack the power to correct the problem that I perceive. The resolution of the power belongs to other people. That's a hard thing to do, especially if you, like me, are old enough to remember the old common law system where you had the power to do that. But on the other hand, I think that is the appropriate response. So let's turn then to the, the second half of the, the question that I raised earlier, and that is kind of the, the normative or the theoretical pushback you might receive to your interpretive theory. And the first, I think, is going to um, be pushback against the notion that the federal rules of evidence really are a statute, at least in the traditional sense. I know some academics have said that it's better to perceive of the federal rules of evidence as an index code, you know, kind of a memorialization of the common law, but not as a complete displacement of it, rather than as a statute. What would your response there be? Well, you're talking about Congress's intent in enacting the federal rules. And I think if you said that to the Congress that enacted federal rules, their eyes would have rolled. Here's a Congress that put the text of the federal rules under a microscope. They added specific words in 801. They deleted specific presence in Article 5. They agonized over the wording of Rule 609. And if you had said to them, you know, you don't worry, you don't need to agonize over this. This is just an index code. This is just giving the courts a starting point. I think they would have really been upset by that. I think you need to think about the extent to which questions of separation of powers played a role in the adoption of the federal rules. And here is where I think both Eileen and Andy really understated the separation of powers concern. To begin with, when the court sent the rules to Congress, what did Justice Douglas say? Justice Douglas red flagged the issue of separation of powers. He said, we've got no right to do this. This legislation, this proposed set of rules exceeds our power. When the rules are transmitted to Congress, what happens? 
first the House Judiciary Committee weighs in. And what do they cite as the basis for the legislation blocking the immediate promulgation of the federal rules? They point to Justice Douglas's consideration of separation of powers concern in his dissent. Then this goes to the Senate. And the Senate bill is entitled, quote, a bill to promote the separation of constitutional powers, unquote. The senator who introduced that bill, Senator Samuel Irvin, later Judge Irvin, when he was describing the legislation, in the very first sentence of his remarks, referred to the separation of powers doctrine. So given that legislative history, if you had told Senator Irvin, if you had told the people in the House who voted to block the promulgation of the federal rules, is that all you're giving the courts is an index guide. You're not imposing real restraints on their power. I think they would have said, read my lips. We are doing precisely that. That is our intent. And that is why the Senate bill is entitled a bill to preserve the separation of powers. I think that contention flies in the face of the history of the rules. I think that's a fantastic response. And I'm going to fling a second pushback your way just to, to test your theory. And the second pushback comes from a more institutional perspective. So I think it's somewhat fair to say that rulemakers have been rather reluctant to uh, pursue any major reforms to the federal rules of evidence over the past 50 years. Now, that's not to say that there have been no reforms. I think there's been around uh, 30 or maybe even more than 30 substantive amendments to the federal rules. But if we look at the past few years, there's been a recent amendment to the residual hearsay exception, a recent amendment to authentication on 902, a recent amendment to the notice requirements under 404B. And some academics would say that, hey, the, the rulemakers here, they're favoring these small reforms and ignoring these big structural reforms, whether that's to 609, whether that's to 404B, whether that's to, to rules that have been challenged both on empirical and normative grounds. And so does the, the fact that rulemakers have perhaps been reluctant to pursue major change coupled with the judicial restraint required by a textualist interpretation of the federal rules, does it lead evidence law to a point of relative stagnation? Well, I, I really commend to everyone that wonderful 2018 Columbia article written by Dan Capra and Lisa Richter. Uh, they're very frank about what goes on in the committee deliberations. Dan, for ages, has been the reporter. Lisa, one of my beloved co-authors, is the academic sultan to the media. And they, they do frankly admit that they are cautious because there are political constituencies, including the Department of Justice, that are impacted by the rules changes. And I think though, to use your expression, institutional, that expression is really well taken because the courts themselves are relatively cautious institutions. They often proceed slowly. One of my long-term colleagues, Margaret Johns, has a wonderful expression that she often reminded me when I'd become frustrated with the progress of judicial reform. Even a glacier moves. Glaciers moving pretty fast these days in the area of climate change. But it's not just the advisory committee. 
courts as a whole have this institutional bias in favor of gradual evolution rather than radical revolution. Years ago, there was an international conference on evidence at The Hague, and Professor Lempert spoke. He saw in the future more and more political intervention in the reworking of the federal rules, 413 through 415. And when you've got growing congressional intervention, it, it says two things. Number one, Congress will be a restraint on the courts when it comes to remaking the rules. But the good side of that is Congress is willing to step in now more than perhaps we anticipated when the federal rules were adopted when they see that the courts aren't willing to make changes that they think are really needed. Ed, this has been a really enjoyable conversation. I think your paper is fascinating. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. By way of my parting words, I'll note that I had a really enjoyable time conversing with Ed today, not only about those three different contexts where he identified a potential misapplication of the federal rules of evidence, but also when we got to that broader discussion about the intersection of interpretive methods and evidence law. Now, I'll note at the outset of this conversation that this is really a hugely important point of discussion. The admissibility question in many contexts will be determined by the interpretive methodology adopted by a judge. Take, for example, Rule 410 and statements made by prosecutors during plea negotiations. Arguably, from a textualist standpoint, from a textualist reading of Rule 410, statements made by prosecutors during plea negotiations, they're fair game. Defendants can um, offer those against prosecutors at trial, and 410 textually provides no barrier to admissibility. But if a judge instead adopts a purposivist reading of Rule 410, all of a sudden those prosecutorial statements are taken off the table. Why? Because now the firewall protecting plea negotiations is expanded to better facilitate Congress's purpose in establishing Rule 410. And that example, Rule 410, is merely the tip of the iceberg. Throughout the federal rules of evidence, you can see instances where the tension between textualism and purposivism is far more than just an academic debate, but rather can materially influence admissibility calculations. So here, and I think this is a major takeaway from my conversation with Ed today, I think every evidence scholar would do well to get up to speed on the current state of the literature surrounding interpretive methods and evidence law. Edwin Winkleried has been by far the most prolific author advancing a moderate textualist reading of the Federal Rules of Evidence, and his pieces date back decades supporting this particular view. Conversely, though, there are fantastic articles by Aline Scallon, Andy Tazlitz, and Glenn Weissenberger, just to name a few, advancing a more purposivist or intentionalist reading of the rules. It's a robust and rich academic literature, and I encourage you all to take a look. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, the University of Arkansas School of Law, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The producer is Ed Chang, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, 
and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir, under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host today, Alex Nunn, from the University of Arkansas School of Law, and I do hope that you will join us next time when we take on another work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.